The following program has some naughty language, so if you are listening to this near little ears, make sure they have little earbuds, but you may also want to distract them. I suggest shadow puppets. It's Tuesday, September 13th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. After winning the Emmy Award for Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Comedy Series, Cheryl Lee Ralph did what Tom Brady never thought to do after winning any of his seven Super Bowls. I am an endangered species, but I sing no victim song. I am a woman, I am an artist, and I know where my voice That's the Diana Reeves song, Endangered Species. It was inspired, and it inspired fellow nominees like Alex Bornstein and Hannah Einbinder to think, okay, you're kind of rubbing it in now. We get it. You're multi-talented. You know what I do? I just act funny in a TV show, which is what I thought the competition was about, right? But, you know, of course, it was amazing. It was so amazing that you could practically say anything afterwards, and you'd still wow us. So she did. To anyone who has ever ever had a dream. You know, you hear this a lot, and I never got this framing. I never got why it worked. You hear it all the time in movie trailers. For anyone who's ever had a dream. Are we all watching this in the theater supposed to think, wait a minute, I've had a dream. I have one almost every night. Last night, I was addressing a conference in my underwear. The night before that, I was asked to take a physics test I hadn't correctly studied for. This movie must be for me. For anyone who's ever had a spine and central nervous system, oh man, I have both those things. That plus the dream. Winter tickets going on sale. Fandango me some immediately. For anyone who's ever evolved, from a hominid dweller of the Great Rift Valley. Also me! Holy cow, I gotta see this movie. For anyone who's ever dreamed means basically all mammals. Well, maybe not the spiny anteater. The date is contradictory on that one. Then you go to the theater, you're all psyched for this movie that was specifically made for you, and who's there next to you? A family of akindas. Right there, all in a row, and you feel ripped off. I thought we had to dream. But in all seriousness, congrats to Cheryl Lee Ralph and her whole Abbott Elementary family, and also the spiny anteater and its family, Techie Glossiday. On the show today, some good news, really good news for everyone. Well, non-Russian soldiers, everyone, but almost everyone. But first, Luke Mogelson, author of The Storm is Here, An American Crucible, is here. Again, he's back to take us inside the Capitol of January 6th. He was right there. QAnon Shaman on one side, the zip tie guy, remember him? Luke ran into him in a buffet dinner afterwards. So I continued the conversation with the New Yorker staff writer and chronicler of chaos, acute and stochastic Luke Mogelson, up next.
We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. Yesterday, we heard from Luke Mogelson, author of The Storm is Here, an American Crucible. He spoke of spending time with militiamen in Michigan and Antifa in Portland. But if your beat is U.S. political extremists, there was one place where you were ultimately going to land. And there he was, Washington, D.C., January 6th, 2021. We picked the story up there. So let's talk about January 6th. Um, You're there at the ellipsis. The speeches are given. You write about, you know, at times being really literally swept up and crushed by the crowd. Um, But there were also choices you made. And I I think I agree with the choices and the journalism that resulted justified them. But were there moments where you, you would have had to have traversed capital grounds, which would be technically against the law, even if you're a journalist? Were there moments where you said to yourself, Ooh, I don't know if uh, this is the right call. This is what I should be doing. No. That's, that's fair. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah, maybe there should have been, but that's my honest answer. I, I was really just, uh, all I was thinking about was making sure, you know, my phone had battery, it was recording, and I was capturing, you know, the most uh, dramatic events in my field of vision. Did you see beatings of police officers on the way in? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. At the Well, so when I arrived, uh, when I got to the Capitol, because I, I, I walked, you know, from the Washington Monument up the mall because everybody else was doing that. And by the time I got up there to the Capitol, the kind of tip of the spear, which was the Proud Boys and some uh, a group of other Trump supporters, had already breached the outer perimeter of metal barriers and the and the police uh had retreated to the foot of the steps to protect the constitution of the united states against enemies foreign and domestic and if you remember those steps were uh covered uh, by uh, by bleachers that had been erected uh, in anticipation right. of the inauguration and those bleachers had been wrapped in kind of a tarpaulin so basically to get up to the upper terrace where the windows were and the doors were to enter the Capitol, you had to go through the understructure of the of the bleachers up the stairs, um, and there was an opening in them. And the police were guarding that opening. And yeah, the the, the Trump supporters were pelting them with baldos and projectiles, swinging punches at them, linking arms, turning their backs, and ramming them, ramming the wall of riot shields. They eventually did get through, and then there was another line of police inside uh, the bleachers uh, using uh, rubber bullet guns and uh, batons and and just, um, yeah, wildly all-out brawling uh, with with Trump supporters on the steps. How'd you decide which group you followed? Well, uh, I didn't really. I was kind of just um, swept away with the the flow of the mob. And I went up the steps after they had gone through that second line. 
And um, when I emerged on the on the terrace, uh, I saw that there were people entering through entering the building through a broken window. And actually, a kind of line had formed there. People trying uh, going in, pouring into the Capitol through that window, which we now know had been uh, shattered by a proud boy with a riot shield that he had taken off of a, a police officer. They broke the glass in the United States Capitol, and now they are climbing through the window. This happened moments. How many? Ago. How many people had been in? Well, you can't tell what happened before you, but do you know where you were in terms of the timeline of people pouring into the Capitol? Well, it's interesting because you, do you remember that footage by the HuffPost reporter who was covering the certification from inside? Right. This was footage of the uh, very brave officer who kind of lured away a bunch of the protesters, knowing right. they lured them away from the most sensitive areas in the Senate floor. Right. So the window that everybody was going into, once you emerged on the other side, there was a kind of hallway and a staircase directly to the left. And that staircase, that marble staircase, led up towards uh, the Senate chamber. And that's where those first, the very first people through, they went up those stairs, encountered Goodman. He diverted them, you know, from the Senate, which was in the process of being evacuated. By the time I went through the window, there was a line of officers right inside, uh, directly to the left, blocking Mm -hmm. that staircase. So... Everybody who came in, rather than trying to go through that line of officers, they just took, they were taking the uh, path of least resistance and turning right. And so I followed, you know, the crowd right down that hallway, which uh, led basically uh, to the rotunda. But it's not like you picked out certain leaders or certain people that you thought might know what they were doing. Uh, No, absolutely not. Um, And some of the like some of the details in the book because I identify uh, quite a few people in the mob in my description of the attack. Um, but a lot of that I got from the video that I took. So in the moment itself, I wasn't aware of who everybody was around me. But when I went back and was able to really look carefully at the video that I recorded on my phone, I was able to you know pick out individuals like Joe Biggs one of the Proud Boy leaders and other folks, including some of the leaders of uh, the Michigan group that organized that first protest yeah. in, uh, in Lansing back in April. So when you were inside the Senate chamber, and I ask, you've, you've probably seen Luke's video, think back about you have the QAnon shaman, quote unquote, presiding over the chamber. You have people rifling through the desks. There's a moment where a Capitol Hill police officer, knowing he's outnumbered and counting the number of people around him, he counts you as one of them. I think there was five of them and one of you, um, gently suggests they leave the chamber and do the right thing. Any chance I could get you guys yeah. to leave the Senate wing? We will. I've been making sure they ain't disrespecting the place. Okay, just want to let you guys know, this is like the <laughs> sacredest place. As you're experiencing it at the time you're shooting film you're trying to chronicle it when you look back on it maybe your reflections on it change from the day after the week after till now what do you make of their behavior once they got inside the inner sanctum yeah it it was interesting because almost all of the violence that i witnessed 
took place outside. And the reason there was violence was because uh, the police were uh, preventing them from entering the Capitol. And so once they overcame that uh, resistance and achieved what they had been, what their objective essentially, they were kind of at a loss, a lot of them, uh, as to what to do. And also, you know, there were no, the lawmakers had all already been uh, successfully evacuated. So it would, I think it would have been a very different story if, if that hadn't been the case, if uh, some of these uh, these rioters had actually managed to get their hands on uh, some some politicians, um, but given that you know the Senate chamber was empty by the time they they entered it, they didn't really uh, know how to proceed from that point. I'm not going to say they were reverent, but they seem so much more subdued than not just outside, but actually than I expected them to be. As they rifled through senators' desks, they seemed almost, you know, they did steal some papers or whatever, but they seemed almost to be like kids caught in in, in a classroom after school is out and they know they shouldn't be there. A bit, yeah. I mean, certainly... A fair number of them, you know, had had never been in D.C. and were just a little bit uh, nonplussed and and taken aback by the fact that you know they had they had succeeded in storming the Capitol. And again, uh, I I think that there was also uh, a dispersal of the mob, so there was a, a kind of um, uh, scattering of the mob energy that propelled the initial assault against the Capitol. And once you have, you know, five people in a room together, it's a much different, it's a much different vibe. It's a much different energy than if you are one of, you know, 10,000. Yeah. No, this is our chair. No. I agree with you, brother, but it's not ours. It belongs to the vice president of the United States yeah. when he's in here. It's not our chair. Look, I love you. They were suddenly no longer, you know, anonymous uh, members of, of a mob. Right. What do you make of the police officer's intervention? Uh, it was very complicated and contradictory. And impossible to generalize about because first of all different officers comported themselves in different ways and then also at different places in different times during the day uh the dynamic varied dramatically so as i as i said the the officers attempting to prevent uh the rioters from entering the building really bore the brunt of, of the violence. And it was horrific. I mean, you've, you've seen the video I saw it with my own eyes. It was full on, no holds barred, hand to hand combat. Then once inside the building, I think that some officers uh, opted to adopt a, a tactic of de-escalation. And, and, and the Unfortunately, you can't attribute that decision to the fact that they were outnumbered because at a certain point they weren't outnumbered. So mm-hmm. like in, in the Senate chamber, for example, you mentioned that we were, there were five of us and one of them. 
at one point, which is true. But then other officers came a few minutes later. And at some point, a whole phalanx of Metropolitan Police entered the chamber. And I was sure that they were going to seal the doors, you know, search everybody, arrest everybody, confiscate our phones, you know, at least make sure people weren't leaving with, you know, senators, private possessions and, and, and documents. Um, but instead, uh, everybody was politely asked and allowed to exit the Senate, then politely escorted, by the way, by police that had clearly recently engaged in tough fighting. I mean, their uniforms were ripped, their hair was messed up. Their- they were covered They were covered in, one was covered in the powder of a fire extinguisher, right? Yeah, yeah. And they were kind of laughing and joking uh, with, uh, the, with the Trump supporters. And everybody that had been in the Senate chamber was then directed uh, to a staircase, down a side hallway, and out a fire exit. And the remarkable thing was that once uh, those people uh, left the Capitol, they just went around the corner uh, to, the, to the north end, where another group, much larger group, of Trump supporters was attacking another entrance. Violently attacking the police, using metal barricades as battering rams. And several of the men who I had seen inside the Senate chamber and who I had seen leave with uh, senators' documents joined this renewed offensive against other officers on the North End. Were all the people you were with inside the Senate chamber arrested eventually? Um, I don't think all of them were, but most of them were. Most of them were. Yeah. Uh, At one point, there were several dozen people in there. Okay. Now, I know the January 6th committee uh, got testimony from a British documentary filmmaker, Alex Holder, and another British, again, documentary filmmaker named Nick Cuesta testified on TV. Did they, I would assume, they would have approached you, and how did those conversations go? They didn't approach me. No? No. Huh. Shortly after we, uh, the New Yorker published about a 13-minute edit of the video that I took that day, people from the FBI reached out to ask for all of my video and I uh, didn't give it to them. And I told them that, uh, you know, I I didn't feel comfortable sharing that with them. And we had kind of thought that we might be subpoenaed and were preparing for that, um, but it never happened. And uh, yeah, I was never contacted again by anybody in, in the government. I would say that's the right decision, though. I don't know exactly what else is on the video. I would assume if it's, you know, anyone committing heinous crimes, maybe there'd be a tougher question to ask yourself. Yeah, I mean, no, it's, you know, I I wasn't there when uh, Ashley Babbitt uh, was killed. And there was, you know, that was a much more kind of violent confrontation than anything I saw inside the Capitol. And there's really clear, and not the moment of the bullet impact, but there's very clear video evidence of that, absent whatever you could have had. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Again, not by journalists. Um, although they're, they're, my friend, uh, the photographer, Victor Blue, he was there and, and photographed the whole thing um, and actually had trouble uh, publishing those photographs. But most of the video that we do have of that incident is just from yeah, members of the mob. Why trouble publishing the photographs? Well, I 
think because there's a reluctance among media outlets to publish graphic images like that, but it's, in my opinion, a reluctance that reflects a, a double standard um, because, you know, outlets often publish pictures of dead people and uh, graphic violence uh, in other parts of the world. And I think there's probably a fear among some of these outlets of provoking, you know, far right extremists. Yeah. And, and kind of offering material or content that might be misused by some of these propagandists and conspiracy theorists that have constructed alternate versions of what happened uh, with Ashley Babbitt's death. And I just for the record, don't agree with that decision whatsoever. And neither does Victor, by the way, we were both very frustrated that he wasn't able to publish those photos. What do you make of the general anti-platforming argument, which would say you're talking to some of the more horrible people in our society. You're asking them for their opinions and their tactics. You're getting to know them. You're presenting their opinions uh, through your journalism. Now, to be fair, you do this with the Proud Boys as well as you do it with uh, and the Groypers, as well as you would do it with Antifa protesters and uh, uh, Black Lives Matter protesters who aren't part of any group before the day they came out. So it's not a matter of inconsistency, but the argument is just don't put these opinions out there. What do you make of that argument? Well, I mean, I, th I think it's ridiculous. I, I'm a journalist, so uh, the, the people who hold that position are essentially, you know, asking me not to do my job. And we've seen how far, you know, sticking our heads in the sand gets us. I think that's kind of why we got into the situation in the first place. Yeah, my job is, is definitely not to hide or water down the ugly parts of, of this country from my fellow citizens. It's to blast a light on it. And lastly, one of the takeaways from the book for me, um, tactically, uh, on smaller levels, I had a number of takeaways about what went wrong, what went right, if anything, what's driving the psychology of the actors. I, but I could not say that a takeaway from this book is something like violence isn't the answer. Over and over again, from what you chronicle, it turns out violence was a pretty useful tactic or tool for almost all the people who were involved. There are occasionally people who get kind of drummed out of Antifa because they stood in the way of violence. But for the most part, I would say that you cannot conclude there is not evidence that you put forward that violence isn't the answer, although I'd like it to be true. What do you think of that? I think that that's a very interesting takeaway from the book. It uh, wasn't my intention uh, in, in writing the book that readers would draw that conclusion. But, you know, after the riot at the Capitol, when Congress reconvened um, and Mike Pence uh, returned to the dais that had just recently been occupied by uh, Jacob Chansley, a.k.a. the Q Shaman, he said that the vice president, Mike Pence, said that uh, violence never wins. Um, and they proceeded to hold a vote on the certification. And a lot of uh, Americans have, I think, drawn comfort from the fact that the same day government was able to effectuate 
a peaceful transition of power, notwithstanding all the efforts of the mob and and Trump and and his allies. But let's not forget that 147 Republicans uh, voted against certifying the election. And, you know, that's a majority of the caucus. And those politicians, again, a majority of Republicans sided uh, with the mob that day. And let's look at where we are now and going into 2024. I think that you can make an argument that January 6th has galvanized and emboldened the right. So I I don't uh, agree with Vice President Pence's assessment that violence never wins. And I think that, you know, any honest look at the world and our own history reveals that statement to be to be false, unfortunately. And you could read that coverage in The New Yorker, where Luke Mogelson's been writing for almost a decade. His book is called The Storm is Here, An American Crucible. Luke, thank you so much. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. Really good news has been dominating the world the last few days. And if you said to yourself, oh, really? Wait, what is it? Tells you a lot about the kind of tough time that anything but pessimism or tumult has for breaking through. But I do, of course, mean or mostly mean Ukraine. The advance of the Ukrainian troops pushing back the Russians has been widely chronicled. Territory gains and Ukrainians in a much better position to escape subjugation and death. Now, in some quarters in the U.S., there is a disinclination to revel in or to feel good about war news. This is misplaced. I guess most people just are, quote, against war or don't want to feel like the kind of people who cheer on military victories. But I got to tell you, military victories are a lot better than military defeats if you're going down to a bunch of people who do want to put you under their heel, make you live their lifestyle, and possibly kill you and your family along the way. Successfully winning a war against a tyrant should be celebrated. Losing a war is a lot worse than not losing it. Losing to an illegitimate aggressor bent on war crimes, that's even worse still. But it's not the only news that's really good news. In fact, it's not the only war news that's good news. Today, we got so much news. We were exposed to so much news that was so good. Well, today, in the last couple of days, just a litany of great news, and I bet you didn't even notice it. So broadly speaking, inflation is still high, and the new report came out, and it's not great. It lowered a bit, but not so much. But let's just stick with the war news, something kind of a little, I'm going to say a little more important to the people involved than 8.1% inflation, which is bad for Americans, but not as bad as what was going on in the Tigray region of Ethiopia. It's one of three wars in the world currently being waged. However, the Tigray People's Liberation Front announced that they're willing to abide by an immediate ceasefire, which was broken months ago, and they will come to the negotiation table with the Ethiopian government. They're committed to participate in the peace process under the auspices of the African Union. The United States encouraged Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed to, quote, seize the opportunity for peace. Yes. 
War, of course, is not the only horseman of the apocalypse. Fame, pestilence, death. It brings us to the Goalkeepers Report. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which I guess you got to pause a little bit more in between those two names, Bill, and also this lady named Melinda or Melinda. Yeah, you might remember Bill. They're not really on the same page. They actually now issue two different takes on the Goalkeepers Report on global progress. But this is their huge foundation just trying to improve the world. I cracked open the Goalkeepers Report report and it had these words. We need to speed up the pace of our progress five times faster to meet most of our goals. And that might even be an underestimate. As bad as the data makes it seem, the real situation might be even worse. So why am I including this in what I called a litany of really good news? Well, the next phrase, or it might be better. And I have to say, a fair reading of the goalkeeper's report shows just how much better things are getting. They have a dozen or so metrics where they go into the world and they try to improve things. And things are improving. Things are greatly improving in some regions. Let's just go by some of their metrics. Stunted growth. Children who have stunted growth. Malnutrition. It's gone from 33% of the world to 23% of the world. That's significant. It's been cut in half in Southeast Asia. What about neonatal death? Cut in half throughout the world since 1990. Latin America, even better than the world average. In North Africa and the Middle East, neonatal death has been cut by two-thirds. Today, 58% of the world's population uses safely managed sanitation. Now, if that's glass half full, literally clean water glass half full, think about where we started. When they started measuring 1990, 29% of the world's population had safely managed sanitation. It has literally doubled in the time they've been looking at it. I was alerted to many of these advances in the report itself by Derek Thompson in The Atlantic, and I think Thompson is right to point to AIDS as an area of such great improvement. When they were doing predictions about AIDS decades ago, they forecast that 5 million people would die of AIDS in 2020. I remember in the early 80s, the forecasts were even more dire than this. But, you know, almost 20 years ago, George W. Bush announced the PEPFAR program combating HIV in Africa, and it's worked. Not just that, but all these global health organizations and pharmaceutical companies and the organizations that get the expensive drugs to the people who need them. So instead of 5 million people dying of AIDS... Half a million people are dying of AIDS. You could look at it and say half a million people are dying of AIDS. You could say that's 90% better than the forecast would have predicted. Tropical diseases. The prevalence of, they have a grab bag of 15 neglected tropical diseases per 100,000 people have been cut significantly. In Southeast Asia, to take one region out of 100,000 people, 71,000 people in 1990 used to have these diseases. Now it's 12, 12,000. It went from something being more than common, being prevalent in the entire region of Southeast Asia to something being rare, quite rare indeed. So that's internationally. Some of these statistics are talking about how the United States is improving. But the United States, specifically, the fate of our poorest children is doing so much better than we ever thought. I read about this in the New York Times and a journalist there, Jason DeParle, who's been covering childhood poverty, all kinds of poverty. And he's just a great chronicler of the 
anguish circumstances on the ground. He's there when people get evicted from apartments. He's there when kids wait at food pantries. But he, the New York Times, in collaboration with a group called Child Trends, have documented that since 1993, child poverty has dropped by 59%. The reasons why are fascinating. It's mostly that the state that the safety net is stitched fairly well. It works in different ways. Some programs work great, some programs work less great, but child poverty, which is one of the main reasons why you organize a society, child poverty has come down by more than half. All the caveats obtain, yes, just being above the poverty line doesn't mean that life is good, doesn't mean that you're going to make it, but it gives so many more children a chance to make it. And like I said, this is why you have a civilization to provide some security, to provide some justice, to provide for the material well-being of most of your citizens, and to give children a chance to thrive. And America is doing that. America is doing that better than we ever knew. We didn't really address it correctly. We never assessed it correctly. And after this study came out, you would think that this would lead other newscasts, but I have not seen any word of this. The New York Times, the most the most prominent, most important news organization in America, did put it on the front page above the fold. But have you? were you talking about it at the office if you've been forced to come back to work? Which gets me to the depressing part. The depressing part is that all this stuff, which isn't depressing, just doesn't break through, right? Maybe you're saying to yourself, okay, that's all good in the abstract. It's great statistics, but I don't feel it. it doesn't give me a raise, doesn't make healthcare more affordable for me and my family. But think about all the things in the news that maybe depress you, that maybe are off-putting or bummers. Most of them don't really affect you, you know, horrible spate of killings in neighborhoods you probably don't live in. Most of the economic news didn't dock your pay, did it? Made you worried, but it didn't dock your pay. Climate change is real and is a huge issue. Uh, When the government passed a bill, which Joe Manchin sought to frame as inflation reduction, but really is the most significant climate change action in years and years and years. I don't know, maybe for one day you said to yourself, it's better it passed than it didn't, but it's not improving your life. And yet every time you read a story about a fire or a flood, that does get you down a little bit. We haven't had any hurricanes this year. Where's the story on lack of hurricanes? I actually read a story on, even with a lack of hurricanes, people are still very nervous in the region that usually experiences hurricanes. So what I'm saying is good things that are remote almost never bring you a smile. They also almost never flit across your consciousness. It's just not the way our media is organized. It's probably not the way that we as humans orient ourselves in order not to get eaten by lions in the savannah. I get it. But good news abounds. This is an acute example of the good news all happening at once. And all I can do is say, well, good. That's a great thing. Let's acknowledge it. That's it for today's show. Good news. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions, which is really good news. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oom Peru, G Peru, Du Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>